worshiping all creatures of our God and King.
So we thank you that you are the one who saves us.
Jesus Christ, who has made 
sake. But it's a living hope because you are alive and well. You are our risen Lord, our risen Savior. You are seated. Open up your Bibles to Philippians chapter 2. We're going to pick up in verse 19 as we continue to journey through the Bible and study God's Word. A couple of things that are reminders. Um, just also make an important note that next Wednesday, um, there is also not going to be youth group uh, on Wednesday or Thursday next week. So just to make sure that you guys take note of that. Um, and we will be doing a Bible study next Thursday night at the camp campsite too. So if you're out there, um, you should have all got your schedules and all the different things that are going on. Uh, super exciting, too. If you uh, have not been attending men's Bible study on Wednesday mornings, we meet, um, well, we open the doors at 5, we show up at 5.30, we talk about prayer, and then we pray and get done about 6.10, and then we're going to start something new. We're going we're gonna to meet next week, so there is men's Bible study next Wednesday morning. That's the only thing that will be happening on campus, um, other than the office being available. But also, uh, in two weeks, I think it's August 2nd, we're going to start the book of Revelation. Yeah, and so, if you're interested in, in studying the book of Revelation, we're going to do that at 5.30 in the morning on Wednesday morning. <laughs> Engage the brain. It'll be awesome. But tonight, we're going to take a look at... Uh, Paul continuing this letter that he's writing from a jail cell in Rome. Have you ever been in a situation where you really wanted to be with somebody, you really missed them, and your heart was with them, but you couldn't be with them? Paul is writing this letter to the church in Philippi, a church he loved. He considered a model church in many ways, and he really wanted to be with them. There were some threats that were going on, though, these, these Judaizers, they were coming around with some false doctrine, and they were, they were really trying to attack his sheep, the people that he was caring for. And Paul, like a good dad and a, and a good shepherd, was really worried about them. And so, in the first part of our study, we've been taking a look at a lot of Paul's doctrine, and he's going to break off just for a moment. Paul is a little um, hyper when he writes Sometimes he gets going on and he rambles on as he writes, and sometimes he'll start down one track and then he'll go to another track. And in the middle of this teaching, he decides, oh, by the way, I'm going to send you a couple people. And then he gets back into his teaching. So you really, you really, I think if, if there was junior high in the Jewish culture, Paul would be an amazing junior high teacher. 
He just he goes all over the map. But he's return, he'll return to his teaching in chapter 3. He wanted to support the church. He wanted the church to know that he was really supporting them, that just because he wasn't there didn't mean he didn't care. And so he has plans. His plan really is to get out of jail and go see them, but he can't even wait for that. So he's going to send two people, uh, Timothy and Epaphroditus, to go and visit him or go and visit them and bring a report. Because keep in mind, it wasn't like Philippi could text message him. There was no face, FaceTime, Facebook, and any of that. If you wanted to know somebody, you actually had to send people. And they had this thing, it's called a letter. I know we don't know what it's like, but it's a... And so they would bring letters and they would bring reports on what was going on. So he really wanted to know what was going on with them. And so he was going to send people. And, you know, in our day and age of technology, we've lost the capacity to actually communicate face-to-face and in a lot of different ways. One of the things that we've done as a church, in order to communicate with our missionaries, a number of years ago, I think uh, since like about 2015-ish, we started sending, besides doing mission trips, we started sending people to go visit missionaries in the field. I've done a number of the trips, and, and we'll send two or three people to go do it. And, and so here in a few weeks, we're going to send James and Michelle Nett to go to Romania. Just as a couple, they're going to go, and they're going to go, and they're going to talk with Marcel and Zolt that are doing ministry in Romania. We have some pictures. In fact, on Mondays, Rachel sends out a missions update, and you'll start seeing some pictures of baptisms, camp. That's going on in Romania. Well, James and Michelle are going on behalf of our church to Romania to support Marcel and Zolt in their summer ministry with the intention to know that, number one, they're not forgotten, that we care about our missionaries that are in the field, and two, they're the advance team that actually is going to put together next year's trip. And they're going to go and get a report and bring back a report face-to-face with doing that. So as you prayerfully consider how God might use you, that may be part of a ministry that you do next summer, whether it's a construction team or an outreach team or a sports team, to be able to do that. Well, Paul is sending kind of an advanced team from his prison cell. He's sending Timothy and Epaphroditus back to Philippi. And we're going to learn a little bit about why these two specific And then we're going to see the reason why in chapter 3. So let's just dive right in. In chapter 2, beginning with verse 19 to 24, we'll see the insight that Paul writes to the church about Timothy coming. He says, But I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you shortly, so that I also may be encouraged when I learn of your condition. For I have no one else of kindred spirit who will genuinely be concerned for your welfare. For they all seek after their own interests, not those of Christ Jesus, but you know of his proven worth that he served with me in the furtherance of the gospel like a child serving his father. Therefore, I hope to send him immediately as soon as I see how things go with me. And I trust in the Lord that I myself also will be coming shortly. So Paul's making plans, which is a good thing. He wants Timothy and and, and to go out and and, and so he makes these plans. One of the things that you've got to understand is that Paul is always about making plans, but he always holds loosely the will of the Lord. 
to be able to do that. Is that a good thing? Absolutely. We should make plans. We should make plans of what we want to do. But we should always reference those plans, Lord willing. Lord willing. Why? Because we can set our plans, but God knows the way. In fact, in Proverbs 16.9, it says, The mind of man plans his ways, but the Lord directs his steps. Within that, we can understand that we can make these plans, but God is going to be the one. Have you ever made plans and everything went sideways? And you're like, oh no, I had all these plans, these things. You know, you wake up in the morning, I got, I got this to do, and I got this to do, and I got this to do. And it went sideways. Why did it go sideways? God wanted it to go sideways. So what do you look for? You look for the, the hand of the Lord in that, and you say, okay, God, what is it that you're doing? Who do you want me to meet? Who do you want me to connect with? Now, mind you, Timothy is Paul's number two. He started with, with Paul early on in his first missionary trip, and he's raised him up. He calls him his son in the faith. And Paul would send Timothy to, on his behalf. He, he, in fact, he was so special to Paul, he would send him to Ephesus to straighten out the Ephesian elders that, that are there. And they were much older than him. He would write to the, the Timothy, he says, Don't let anyone despise you of your youth. Go straighten them out. And it was as if Paul himself was going when Timothy showed up. And it was, it was an encouraging thing. <clears throat> and so the goal of sending Timothy was that Paul would learn for sure how things were going in Philippi. He wanted to know really what was happening. He didn't want to hear some fairy tale. or Have you ever you know, gone away and left your kids at home? And then you call back up and you go, hey... How are things going at home? And they go, oh, it's great. Shh, be quiet. They're on the phone. And then, you know, you realize that they threw a party while you were gone and a couple of things broken or whatever. Why? Because when it comes time to give a report, a lot of time people will only tell you what they want you to think, not what is reality. Paul needed someone he would trust. He was the right man for the job. He didn't want somebody that he would send that would paint a picture that would give some kind of fluff. He wanted to know the real deal. Why? Because he cared for the church of Philippi. He cared for the believers that are there. And if they were struggling, he really wanted to know. Think about it. How many people do you go up to and you say, hey, how are you doing? They go, fine. Do me a favor. Follow up the question with, no. How are you really doing? How are you really doing? Because we want to know. And, and we're looking for honesty. And Timothy was going to be honest to Paul because he was somewhat of his son in the faith. In fact, there are some characteristics, four to be exact, that Paul lays out in this letter of him sending Timothy. One of the things the text tells us is that he had a genuine interest for the church. Timothy was pastoral. And what do I mean by that? A pastoral leader is one that really wants to shepherd the flock, that wants to care for the people. There is a difference between a pastor and a hireling. The pastor is the first one in, last one out, cares for the, the sheep, willing to lay down his life. The hireling says, eh, I'm just doing a job. I can tell you this, in ministry... 
especially in pastoral ministry, those that are in pastoral ministry that are just punching the clock and doing their time should get another job. Go to work for somebody else. Because ministry is a lifestyle. Timothy had devoted his life to pastoral ministry, just as Paul did, and cared for them within this. He had a genuine interest in care, and he learned to love the church the way that Paul loved the church. He learned to care for people because he was with Paul and watched Paul care for people. And so, it was a a good thing that Paul was sending Timothy because then Paul would hear from a pastor's heart how the people are doing and what's going on there. The second thing about Timothy is that Timothy was Christocentric. What do I mean by that? Christocentric means Christ-centered. He was pastoral, but he was also centered on the work of Christ within this. That he, he wanted to be able to be in that place where Christ was going to be the center, the gospel was going to be the center. Notice he says, he, he's talking about the challenge in verse 21, there are those that are seeking their own interest and not of Christ. Christocentric means that I'm putting Christ in the center of everything and I'm looking for Christ and what He can do to be able to be in that place. Not to be self-centered. Christ-centered. Now, what would it be for a pastor to go in to be self-centered? Well, Timothy would show up in Philippi and say, you know, I don't want to stay at the Best Western. I want to stay at the Hilton or whatever, the, the higher hotel. I don't, I don't want, you know, the, this little piddly food. I want the best of the food or whatever the case is. Timothy would go into town and say, how can I pray with you? How can I meet your needs? How can, how can I share Christ with you and not have things in a self-centered way within this? The third thing about Timothy is that Timothy was committed to Paul. Paul describes him as his son in the faith. He's been in this place, and he says in verse 22, that, but you know of his proven worth, he served with me in the furtherance of the gospel as a child serves his father. Paul and, and Timothy had this father-son relationship within this. Paul could trust him as a son. He could trust what he would say. And so he was trustworthy because he was relationally. He wanted to be able to be in that place. He took care of Paul. And you think about how many times Timothy took care of Paul after being beaten up and stoned and having to take care of his band-aids and his thorn in the flesh and all of the different things. Timothy was there to take care of Paul. And the fourth thing about Timothy is that, as we just read, Timothy was committed to the furtherance of the gospel. Timothy was an evangelist. He wanted the gospel. He was on the same mission that Paul was in. So when you look at a ministry team that is there, and one who's been discipled, Paul the great evangelist had discipled Timothy to do ministry like he's done. So here's a challenge for you. Who's your Timothy? Who's your Timothy? When you get sidelined, who is going to carry on the ministry for you in your stead? And you say, well, I don't know. I haven't thought about that. You need to think about it. Because I, I you know, don't mean to be mean, but some of you are getting old. And 
we need you to train younger people. It's called mentorship. It's your Timothy. I'm doing, personally, I'm doing four different discipleships right now. Training up some younger people. Why? Because I'm getting old. And I'm not going to be around forever. And it's the pattern that God has given us is to make disciples. Also, you need to be a Timothy under somebody else. You need to learn. You need to grow. I have people that I listen to that I watch. And, you know, I would, I would love to have sat under, personally, Charles Stanley. I don't get to do that right now, but I get to do it every Sunday morning, right before I come to church. That is, that is where I sit and learn, one of the people that I, that I listen to. And so Timothy had Paul. Paul had Timothy, and he had somebody that he could send on his behalf to go do the work because he couldn't go and do it. He was an important role as a minister. Mind you, Timothy's job was not to replace Paul. Timothy's job was to extend the ministry of Paul. Understand, he's not, he, he's not necessarily training the next guy that's going to write more of the New Testament. But he's to extend the ministry of Paul further out. Now, the challenge is, as he writes... He says, I want to come to you shortly in verse 23. I hope to send him immediately as soon as I see how things are going with me. And what does he mean by that? Well, keep in mind, Paul is where? In a Roman prison. What happens to Roman prisoners? Sometimes they die. He doesn't want to send Timothy out because he doesn't know what is going to happen. Is he going to stay there? Is he going to be a while? Is he going to need him? Is there going to be a trial? He wants Timothy there because Timothy is a great support to him personally as an assistant. So he says, I want to see how things are going. How do we know that's the case? Because later in 2 Timothy, when he writes the second letter to Timothy, he actually calls Timothy to come back to him because he's facing the end of his ministry and the end of his life. 2 Timothy 4, 9 through 11 says this. As he writes to Timothy, make every effort to come to me soon. For Demas, having loved this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. The Cretans have gone to Galatia, Titus to uh, Dalmatia, and only Luke is with me. Pick up Mark and bring him with you, for he is useful for me to service. And if you remember, John Mark was the one that abandoned him in the first missionary journey. What's Paul saying? I'm all alone, and this is not going well, and I need some support. I need my son here. And get Mark. Bring him with me. And he would say, get the scrolls, get my cloak, you know, and those kinds of things that are there. So Timothy, all set to go. Timothy, you're going to go. As he's writing to the letter. Why? So they would expect him. But the second person that they say to expect is another guy by the name of Epaphroditus. In 25 to 30 it says, But I thought it necessary to send you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier, who is also your messenger and minister to my need, because he was longing for you all and was distressed because you had heard that he was sick. For indeed he was sick to the point of death, but God had mercy on him and not on him only, but also on me, so that I would not have sorrow upon sorrow. In other words, so he didn't die while he was here. Therefore I've sent him all the more eagerly so that when you see him again, you may rejoice. 
and I may be less concerned about you. Receive him then in the Lord with all joy, and hold men like him in high regard, because he came close to death, note, for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was deficient in your service to me. So this second guy, Epaphrodites, is less known than Timothy. Epaphroditus, his name means beautiful. He was a Macedonian Christian that was out of Philippi, out of the city. So he was from there. Um, He was a leader within the Philippian church that is there. And he was sent to Paul while Paul was in, in Rome to bring support. What kind of support? Financial support. Because one of the things that happened is he was, he was there to bring gifts. He was there to bring support and word from the church, but he was there to bring some financial support because if you were in a Roman prison like this under house arrest, you had to pay your own way. Paul needed some money. And so the church of Philippi was sending money with Epaphroditus to support him within that ministry. But while he was there, he started doing ministry with Paul. He was doing the work of the Lord in Christ. Paul was there. And and you can imagine this. Paul doesn't sit still very easy. But he can't go anywhere. So he starts directing Timothy and Epaphroditus to do ministry. Well, Epaphroditus was doing so much work. And he was doing the work of the Lord. He actually got sick. Really sick. Within that. And it was a sickness that the text tells us that was close to death. But within this he would be sent back. Now, Paul commends Epaphroditus as a brother. Note, a fellow soldier. That meant he was doing the work. He was doing the work of evangelists there in Rome with Paul. He was a useful partner in ministry. But after Epaphroditus got sick, and the church of Philippi heard that he got sick, they were very concerned, and he was very concerned. And he says, look at uh, Paul, I need to go back. I've got a lot of people back home that are really concerned about my well-being. I need to go back and let them know that I'm okay. That everything's okay. That God healed me. I need to go back and give testimony to affirm this. And so Paul was sending Epaphrodite back based on Epaphrodite's request to go back and to affirm them. Paul was praising the Lord that while Epaphrodite wasn't there, that he didn't die. Because he says that would have been sorrow upon sorrow. Here I got this support. I got this guy from, your, from Philippi that's come to support me. And he comes out and he's been serving me and he dies. I would feel responsible. I feel responsible. He came out to support me. And he died in the process. I, I would feel so horrible. And so within this, he would send him back with the church. Um... And he was asking the church to honor him for his missional work. Now, within this, what's implied in here, and we're not told exactly what, but what's implied in here is that there was a potential for a sense of disgrace in Epaphrodite's returning back. So Paul elevates him and says, you need to honor him. And don't think that because he's coming back early, that it's a bad thing. It's not a bad thing. Receive him. Receive him well. And and he came to do the work, but he's coming back early. Sometimes in the mission field, people get sick. 
Sometimes things happen and they can't complete the work. Can you imagine what it's like to say, yeah, I got to do this and, and, and I got all the way over there and things went sideways and I got to come back. I don't feel like I don't feel like it's accomplished. I don't feel like I did what needed to be done. And, and maybe feeling a little bit defeated. I had so much more to do. And Paul is encouraging him, saying, okay, Epaphrodites, you go with Timothy, because I can't send Epaphrodites by himself, and you go with Timothy, and go back, and you all at the church celebrate them. Receive them that are there. He tried to do some more support. He, he, he was there, and Paul really wanted them to know that he was grateful for the care that they had sent, and he wanted to be able to send them back. So, Paul, in this little parenthetical discussion, in between doctrine, says, I'm going to send these guys back in this letter. Now, keep in mind, we read it in the Bible. What we're reading is a letter. And this is a letter that Paul was sending back with Timothy and Epaphroditus, who were going to hand-carry this letter back to Philippi. So, so he says, yeah, I, I started doing this. Oh, by the way, I'm going to send them back. Here's, here's what I want you to know about them. Okay, now let's get back to the teaching. So in chapter 3, verses 1 to 21, he continues on in the instruction piece, which was really the main thing and the main cause of his worry. One of the greatest dangers to any church is not the attacks from the outside, but the attacks from the inside. The attacks from the outside we can see, Right? But false doctrine and false teachers that are raised up from inside, that is the greatest danger. Divisions, dissensions, false doctrines, infighting. And I know that never happens in churches. It was only a Pauline thing. But the reality is, it is a danger. Be careful, people, who you listen to. Who you lend your heart to. The doctrines that you hear. Because Satan, he will present himself as an angel of light. He is the chief deceiver. And if he can get you to believe a lie and bring that seed of untruth into the church, it will grow in deceptions. And so what was going on is Paul is going to address these spiritual brethren that are now in Philippi. We call them Judaizers. Who were they? These were this group of Christian Jews that were going around behind Paul saying, look it, yeah, we're Christians and we're Jews, and you're not really a true Christ follower or a Christian unless you also practice Judaism. So you have to revert back, and they're trying to convert all these Gentiles into Judaism. You don't have the complete message. And they were following Paul around and undermining his ministry with this false doctrine. And they were going around and saying, grace is not enough. The cross is not enough. You've got to obey the law. You've got to be circumcised. And, and here Paul knows this is happening and he's stuck in a prison. So he's writing back this last part of this letter to address this false doctrine that is there. These Judaizers that were seeking to distort the gospel and bring these people back into the bondage of law. Now, keep in mind, 
What was Paul's job? What was Paul's role prior to becoming a, a Christ follower? Prior to Acts 9. What was his job? He was what? A Pharisee above Pharisees. Did Paul know the law? Yes. Better than most. Was, was Paul zealous for the law? The most zealous. Did Paul have a pedigree of Jews? Absolutely. And then he was delivered from that into grace and mercy and forgiveness and understood the, the, the centrality of the gospel found in Jesus Christ who died on the cross, rose again three days later, and offers forgiveness, and then met Paul on the road. And now this group of people have a distorted gospel that are leading people into bondage. The same bondage that he was freed from. One of the passions that you will find is the very thing that God delivers you from, you will become passionate for to lead others out of that bondage. I know people that have suffered from alcoholism, that have come to faith, that have determined that they are in faith and in Christ going to seek to minister specifically to those that are struggling with alcoholism. Why? Because they know the dangers. The same with drugs. They know the dangers. The same with all these other bondages and all these other things. Why? Because they've been through it and been delivered. Now, how would you feel if people took the very thing that you were delivered from, distorted it, and added some kind of quirky gospel to it and was deceiving your family and your friends? Would you be a little bit upset? Absolutely. So Paul is lighting this thing up. And so within this, he's going to address it in this letter. He uses one verse in chapter 3, verse 1 as a transition just to get him kind of back on track. He says, Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things again is no trouble to me, and it is a safeguard for you. In other words, I'm going to repeat myself. Rejoice in the Lord. You want to have joy in the Lord. Why? Because Philippians really is the book of joy. Paul wants them to have joy, but those that are found under the bondage of anything other than grace, they have no joy. Paul says we're going to rejoice where? It's important to understand the language. He says rejoice in the Lord. It's what's called a present active imperative. The word in there is a dative. It means a locative. It's, it's the idea of I'm rejoicing in the Lord. That's where my joy is coming from. So his mission statement is find your joy in the Lord. What does it imply? You're not going to find your joy in the law. You're not going to find your joy in your bondage. If you think you're going to find joy in anything other than the Lord, you're sadly mistaken. And he says, I'm going to repeat myself. And I don't mind repeating myself. It's for you that I'm repeating myself. I'm repeating myself. Why? Because these Judaizers are coming at him and he's setting up this teaching. That Jesus has set them free. And in verse 2, it's as if he had a, a spiritual shotgun. That he comes right out. And he says in verse 2, Beware of the dogs. Beware of the evil workers. Beware of the false circumcision. What is he saying here? Something, he, he, he's using these terms. Beware of them. Watch out. He uses... 
these three terms, these dogs, why? Because they were joy robbers. Rejoice in the Lord and beware of the joy robbers, the dogs, the evil workers, the ones that are calling for circumcision or false circumcision. Literally, the word is mutilators. So dogs. So you think about this. In Near Eastern culture and Eastern culture, are dogs well thought of? No. They're mongrels. The Gentiles were called dogs, which is interesting because the Jews would call the Gentiles dogs. But what does Paul call these Judaizers? They're the real dogs. The mongrels at that time would travel and pack and scavenge around the least or the weakest of the groups of the people. And so within this, these, these dogs were running around scavenging behind Paul trying to devour the, the young Christians that are there. Does that happen in our world today? Sure. Sure. Satan is going to run around and look for the weakest and the separated and the lost and try to devour them within that. He calls these Judaizers dogs. Then he calls them evil workers or literally deceitful workers. In 2 Corinthians 11.13 it says, For such men are false apostles, deceitful workers, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. They're pretenders. They were involved in all the ritualistic stuff, making themselves look good, but they only had one intention, and it was evil. To devour the people, to undo Paul's ministry, to, to distort the Gospel in such a way that the people would be destroyed. Who's behind that? Satan is. Satan is behind all deceptions. Now, again, I know that we don't have deceivers in our world today. And I know that on TV and all the other things, we don't have people that are pretending to have your best interest in mind when they really have their own interest at heart. But the reality is, we are surrounded by evil workers all the time. And we have to be on guard with that. And so he says, beware. The last category that he gives are those of the false circumcision or the mutilators. And it's an interesting play on this word circumcision because he calls it a mutilation. And it's the idea of cutting the flesh for no spiritual reason or benefit. You say, well, Kerry, what does that mean? You've got to go all the way back to circumcision. What was circumcision given for? And it, it was given by God. It was given, first of all, to whom? Abraham. Why? So that all the people under the Abrahamic covenant would carry with them, them all the men would carry with them the mark of the Abrahamic covenant. So circumcision was part of the, the mark that would go throughout all the generation. We're going to cover it in a couple weeks in Joshua. But the reality is circumcision was given as a sign as being part of the Abrahamic covenant for Jews. These are not Jews. The Philippians are not Jews. There is no benefit, no spiritual benefit for a Gentile to be circumcised. None. So what were they saying? 
if you really want to be a Christian, get circumcised and then you'll be part of the covenant. You'll be complete. No, not at all. There is no spiritual benefit in that. Medically, you can talk to your doctor about that. But the reality is, this covenant was between Israel and God, and they were forcing a covenant that they were not part of upon people that it wasn't necessary for. And so, they were teaching this religion. It's kind of like saying, if you really want to be holy, walk into a church building. You don't have to believe anything that it represents. You don't have to believe in God. You don't have to believe in Jesus. Just walk into the church building and everything will be okay. Does that work? No. Because it's a matter of the heart. They were the false circumcision. And, and it's false. But is there a circumcision? A spiritual one, for sure. Notice what Paul says as we kind of read through the rest of these. He says this, For we are the true circumcision who worship in spirit of God and the glory of Christ and put no confidence in the flesh. Although I myself might have confidence even in the flesh, if anyone else has a mind to put confidence in the flesh, I far more circumcised on the eighth day and the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, to the law and the Pharisees, as the zeal persecutor of the church, as to the righteousness to the law and found blameless. So what does he say? He says, well, he says, here's the deal about circumcision. God does not care about the outside flesh being circumcised. What does he care about? The heart that is circumcised. Well, how do you do that? How do you do that? It is a spiritual action. Paul would write to the church in Colossae, in Colossians 2.11, he says, And in him you were also circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, and in the removal of the body of the flesh, a circumcision of Christ. What is a circumcision? The circumcision is a spiritual one, and it's an act of worship. Where the, the old heart, the dead heart, is cut out, and God gives you the new heart. The old flesh and the old man is cut away, so that the new man would be there. Notice, it's, it's important for us to understand that it, the spiritual circumcision is a subtraction and an addition. You say, well, what is it? The spiritual circumcision is the subtraction of a heart of stone, and it's the addition of a heart of flesh or the spirit. It's the subtraction and the removal of a dead heart that's incapable of knowing God, and it's the addition of the Spirit of God that dwells in the man that allows us to be able to know God. So there is a removal, a cutting away, a removal of it. And then the addition within that. Whereas in the fleshly circumcision, it's only a subtraction within that. It is a spiritual action. In 1 John 4.13, it says, By this we know that we abide in Him and He in us, because He has given us of His Spirit. Paul says, we are of the true circumcision. Why? Because of the Spirit of God that dwells in us, with, within that. And so then he got into this conversation. He says, okay, you've got to love Paul, because Paul would always pick a fight. <laughs> he writes his letter. He says, okay, they're all, the, they're all that. They think they're all that. Let's talk about pedigree. 
And he lists his pedigree. Notice the things that he, that he goes through on seven things. Circumcised on the eighth day. Right? He, he, that happened. But yet salvation is not of ritual. Of the stock of Israel. But to Paul, salvation is not of race. Of the tribe of Benjamin. But in Paul's economy and in, in the gospel, there is no benefit of rank or tribe. Paul says he was a leader of Hebrews. True. But salvation is not based off of your tradition or your religion. Paul knew the law intimately as a Pharisee. But salvation is not by the law. He had an intense zeal. More zeal than any of them. But salvation is a grace gift. It's not something that you have to work at. Paul was blameless under the law. But salvation is not based off of a legal aspect. You've been saved by faith. Through grace. It's this gift that you've given by grace through faith. It's, you've been given this. It's not something you do. Paul understood that. And he says, all these guys have all of these credentials. And they're nothing. Paul had every religious point covered in his life, but he still didn't feel like he was good enough. So he went out and he killed Christians and threw them in jail until he met Jesus. And Jesus picked him and says, Paul, I've chosen you. I've chosen you. Do you realize tonight that you were chosen by God? Not based on anything that you have ever done, your pedigree, your race, your education. God, God loves you as you. And, and you cannot do another thing that would make God love you anymore. Or make His grace even greater in your life. Yet these false teachers were teaching the opposite. You have to work hard to make yourself more lovable to God. That's a lie from the pit of hell. We've got to understand. Paul reviews all of these things. The other thing that I think is important that Paul, he pushes against all of this and challenges this, this, this idea. But notice what verse 7 says. And 7 is important. But whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Doesn't matter what pedigree I got. I count it as worthless compared to my relationship with Christ. One of the things that I love about Paul is this. Paul viewed his life like traveling in a car. There's a windshield in front of him. And there's a rear view mirror just above it. Paul kept his eyes looking ahead. And he refused to look in the rear view mirror. He says, all of those things are past. All of those things are gone. And as we're going to read in a moment, Paul pressed on the mark to look forward only and not spend all his time looking in the rear view mirror. If you were driving with somebody... And they tried to drive the car and all they were doing was watching the rearview mirror. What would you do? 
probably rip the rear view mirror off and say, look forward. The Judaizers were trying to get all of these new Christians to look in the rearview mirror of the law and not keep their eyes focused on the windshield and look to Christ within them. So Paul goes on and he, he then, in verses 7 to 11, describes the value that's found in being in relationship with Christ. He says, all these other things I count as lost for the sake of knowing Christ, more than I count all the things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all these things and count them but rubbish, dung, as the King James would put it, so that I may gain Christ and I may be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which through the faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God, on the basis of what? Faith that I may know Him and the power of His resurrection, the fellowship of His suffering, and conform to His death, in order that I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Paul lists this huge list of benefits and value that is there for the true believer. And he accounts, and he, he, as if he's in accounting, he says, this is my old life, this is my new life, and my new life totally outweighs my old life. In fact, I want to throw my old life away. Because what I value is the new life. There is nothing in my old life that, that is there. He, he compares it to the, this goal. And what is this goal? There are five different goals that he says. What is my goal? Knowing Christ as Lord. Second goal. Knowing the righteousness comes through faith and not works. How freeing is that? How freeing is it to know that righteousness comes through faith and the work, the completed work that you, it's not by works. Knowing the power of his resurrection, what does that mean? That means new spiritual life today and eternal life forever. Why would you go back and trying to earn your way into the grace of God? It doesn't make sense. Knowing the fellowship of his suffering. One of the things that Paul cherished was the cost of his salvation. Knowing that Jesus suffered and died for him to be saved. And what he valued and cherished was the fact that he could taste of the suffering that his Savior went through. And know the fellowship, the koinonia to have in common. I can't imagine the pain and the suffering that Jesus went through to die on the cross for the sins of all mankind... And if I have to suffer a little bit as a Christian today, it's not even comparable. But yet, to know that I am in connection with Christ. Now, does that mean I need to be a sadist and go pick a fight with somebody? No. Don't be stupid and go and say, you know, to a bunch of people that, hey, look it, I want you to beat me up in, in Jesus' name. No. But when you're persecuted for, for pursuing the gospel of peace and you're pursuing that and people persecute you, just understand they did it to Jesus first. And he maintained that testimony. To know the fellowship and then to know the reward. You know what the reward is? Heaven. 
glory. Celebration of life eternal. Knowing that someday I'm going to shed this skin and this body in this world. Not soon enough in my book. Paul goes on and he talks about zeal. He was very humble, but very zealous. Notice, he says, not that I've already attained it, which he hasn't, already become perfect, which I haven't, but I press on that I may lay hold of that which also I was laid hold of by Christ. Brethren, I don't regard myself as having laid hold of it yet, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind, rearview mirror, reaching forward for what lies ahead, windshield. I press on towards the goal, the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. What does Paul say? Here's the difference between the Judaizers and me. I'm pressing on towards Jesus. Here's the difference between religion and relationship. My thoughts are occupied on Christ and Christ alone. My thoughts are occupied on my great salvation based off of grace through faith. My thoughts are not occupied on what law I have to obey, what law I potentially broke, or what thing I had that I did to displease God, or these other things. Paul is very focused. Not that I've already attained. He knows he's not perfect, and none of us are. We're all works in progress. Will we mess up? Absolutely we will. Will we make mistakes? You know we will. These religious zealots will pound on people for making their mistake. Paul says, put your mistake in the rearview mirror and press on to the mark. Put that old life behind and press on. It's interesting this word, this idea of pressing on, it is to lay every effort forward. And notice what he says. This is, this is really cool if you're a sports person. I think Paul was. If there was ESPN in the jail cell, he would be watching it. He said this, But I press on, it's an athletic term, that I may hold, lay hold of that which is already laid hold on me. That's a wrestling term. What is he saying? Jesus has grabbed a hold of me and I'm grabbing a hold of Him who already has a hold of me. That's what He's saying. Jesus has me. And I am putting every effort I have to grab a hold of Him. But the beauty is, He's already got you. You ain't going anywhere. He's got you in a hold, and all you're doing is you're grabbing a hold of Him that holds you. Which is powerful. This process we call in Christianese, or Christian terms, sanctification. It's working out your salvation with fear and trembling. It's, it's, it's having that focus and putting all your effort into it. Paul would write to the church in Corinth, 9.24, or, I'm sorry, yeah, 9.24. Do you not know that those who run in a race will all run, but only one receives the prize? Run in such a way that you may win. Press on. Is life going to be hard? Yep. Press on. I feel like I'm slipping. Don't worry. Jesus got to hold you. 
just work on grabbing a hold of Him that already has you. What if I mess up? Put it in the rearview mirror. Look forward. Keep going. And be zealous in one direction. Forward. Don't look back. Go forward. Satan loves to remind you of your past. God reminds you of your future. And if your mind is taking you to your past, you're listening to the wrong voice. Only listen to the voice that tells you to look forward, to press on. And Paul encourages them, have zeal in looking forward. Put your energy in looking forward. Verses 15 and 16, he says, Let us, therefore, as many that, as are perfect. And that word perfect is not like perfect, perfect, but complete. Tell us. As many of us that are complete have this attitude. And he's talking about Christians. If anything you have is a different attitude, God will reveal it also to you. However... Let us keep living by the same standard to which we have attained. So what is he saying? He's saying, look at, in this, he encourages them, and he calls mature lead, Christians, believers, to live in maturity, to have the right attitude. Are there going to be differences? Yeah. So what does he mean? As much as you can, live within unity. Live in the way that you've been taught. Live in the way that I've taught you. Live in the way that all of us in the direction that we are going and don't buck against each other. Paul, there's going to be differences and different attitudes towards God's law, God's plan. And, and so we see that today in denominational churches, right? You know, the church of what's happening now down the street. And the church of I don't know over here. And the church of maybe over here. Are they Christocentric? Do they put Jesus in the center? Do they believe the simple gospel? then let's move forward and not focus on our differences, but focus on the things we have in common as long as they are in Christ. Paul is looking at this church going, we cannot split over this. So some people are going to be more legalistic because of their background. Yeah, let them. Some people might be a little bit more liberal. Let them. But all of us believe that Jesus Christ is the one and only Son of God. Amen. That is what's essential. And that by His sacrificial death and faith in Him alone, that He rose again three days later, paying the penalty for our sins, has accomplished the atonement for our sins and allows us to come back into faith with God. And that God gives us His Spirit, calls us into one family. Are you going to have weird brothers and sisters? Yeah, that's a family. But that's okay. But we shouldn't allow these differences and we shouldn't allow these people to take us away. However, let us keep living by the same standard in which we have attained or what we've been taught. Keep the main thing the main thing. Lastly, Paul lays out the warning. A big warning. Where he says this, Brethren, join in following my example. So he says, we're going the same direction. Brethren, join in following my example and observe those who walk according to the pattern that you have in us. For many walk, of whom I have often told you and now tell you, weeping, 
that they are enemies of the cross. Those who are, whose end is destruction, whose God is their appetite, whose glory is in their shame, who set their minds on earthly things. For our citizenship is in heaven, from which also we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform this body of our humble state into conformity with the body of His glory by the exertion of the power that He has even to the subject, subject all things to Himself. So what does Paul say? Well, in his closing section here, he, he goes through and he says, Brethren, join in following my example and observe all those who walk according to the pattern. What is he saying? Okay, you can't see Jesus physically, but you want a model. Do what I do. Live spiritually according to my model. Use me as a model or an example. And, not just me only, but others around you in the faith community, they're also walking in that same direction. Why? Because Paul leans back to the Deuteronomy establishment in the mouth of two or three witnesses, let every word be established. How do I know it's true? You find somebody that's doing right, follow them, and find the people that are following them that's doing it right because they all look like Christ. Paul saw Jesus. He learned from Him. I was talking with one of the guys I'm discipling about the canonicity of the Bible. And we were talking about how do... And, and his question was, how do we know that the Bible is true? How do we know that the translation is true? Well, I can't cover it in three minutes. But I can tell you this. When you study the canonicity or how to measure Scripture, you've got to start with when it was said the testimony of those that were there when it was said, and the testimony that knows the people that were there when it was said, and it builds on proximity and time. When, it, when was it written? When was it said? When was it accepted? And so forth. The same thing in faith. Paul saw Jesus. People saw Paul. They learned from Paul and the people that learned from Paul, and the church was built within that. Follow those people. If you don't know what to do, find somebody that knows Jesus and follow them. That's called discipleship. That's learning. Within this, Paul would say in 1 Corinthians 11.1, 1, Be imitators of me, just as I also am of Christ. How do I know Paul is doing it right? Here's Paul. Here's what I know about Jesus. Do they line up? Here's Carrie. Here's Jesus not lining up. Don't follow him. Because Christ is always the model in the Scripture. Here's Pastor Joe. Not looking like Jesus. Do you follow him? No. Does he sound like Jesus? No. Does he teach Jesus' words? No. Don't follow him. It's pretty simple. Paul lays out that there's only two classes of people in the world. Those that are following Jesus and those that are not. That's it. They either look like Jesus or they don't look like Jesus. Well, who do I follow? The ones that look like Jesus. Do I follow the ones that don't look like Jesus? No. No. Why? Because they're deceivers. Paul exposes them. What do they look like? Verses 18 and 19. Well, one of the things is anybody that's opposed to the cross. Anybody that's opposed to the cross. What do you mean, Carrie? Pretty simple. They're opposed to the cross. You can't pray 
But here, let me tell you what to do. You can't read your Bible, but here, let me tell you what to do. You can't believe in Jesus. It's a fairy tale. But here, let me tell you what to do. You know what you tell that person? Pack sand. I'm doing what God tells me to do. You, you may have, you know, some political authority, but when it comes to spiritual authority in my life, I'm only following people that follow Jesus. Paul says these are people that are opposing the cross. What, did, what was opposing the cross? You don't need the cross to be saved. Just do enough good works. Does that happen in the world today? Yes. Somebody that says you don't need the cross... Somebody that says you don't need to go to church. Somebody says that you don't need to read the Bible. Just be a good person and you'll get to heaven. Is that a truth or a lie? Lie. Don't listen to them. Says anyone that opposes the cross. Don't follow anyone that contradicts the message of the gospel. Don't follow anyone whose appetite is self-centered. Where the God is their belly. Their end is destruction. You want to follow that person, follow. But the road that they're going is hell. You get rid of the cross. You get rid of the gospel message. You get rid of Jesus. You get rid of all of that. The only road that they're on is to hell. Don't follow them. And don't be deceived into following them. And then he finalizes this with what I would call the biblical worldview. This is not your home. Heaven is your home. This world is not your home. Their end is destruction. But notice in verse 20, our citizenship is where? Heaven. And we're eagerly waiting for that. How are we going to get there? I can tell you how you're going to get there. After Jesus has died on the cross, paid the penalty for your sins, you put your faith and trust in Him that He died for you, and because He physically rose again in body... He will take you there in a transformation where you will shed this body, shed this world, and be in His presence. That's the promise. Where He says here, verse 21, who will transform this body of our humble estate into conformity with the body of His glory. Oh, wait a minute. What does it say? That means when you die, you're going to get the same glorified body that Jesus got. And it's a spiritual work that He does that turns into a physical work under His power because He exerts the power. Why? Because He has power over all things. You mean Jesus can transform this body into a spiritual body? Yeah. He says this, Carrie, get out of that thing and I'm going to give you a new one. How do we know that? We know that because we're told that in Scripture. One last verse. 1 Corinthians 15, 50-58. Pay attention to this. As a citizen from heaven, and God gives you the orders to move out of this house and give you a new address, this is how it works. Verses 50 to 58. Now I say this, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does this perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. That means we don't understand it. It's hidden, not revealed yet. And it won't be revealed until we get there. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. In a moment, in a twinkling of an eye, and the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed, metamorphosis, transformed. For this perishable must put on the imperishable. This mortal will put on immortality. But when this perishable, 
has put on imperishable. This mortal put on immortality. Then will come about the saying, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin. The power of sin is the law. What has Paul been speaking against? But thanks be to God who gives us victory over what? Sin, death, and the law through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not in vain. What's in the windshield? What's in front of you? Heaven. Heaven. Don't get sidelined by all the junk that's going on. Keep the main thing the main thing and press on and don't be deceived. Set that stuff aside and you'll win. Let's pray. God, I thank you. I thank you that you give to us this hope, this plan, and this future. I thank you for the words of Paul. He is a fireball. And I thank you that he has laid clearly without any question that there are only two kinds of people, the saved and the unsaved. There are only two roads, the road to your heaven and the road to destruction. There is only one way to get to heaven, and that's through grace and faith and your mercy and through Jesus. Lord, help us to stop looking in the rearview mirror. Stop listening to all the voices that want to detour us. And may we press on to achieve that destination, that heaven. And Lord, when we slip and when we fall, may we realize even if we slip and we fall and we feel like we're losing our grip on You, You never let go of us. I thank You for that promise. As we close out tonight, may we worship You. May we rejoice in this great salvation and honor You with our voices even now. In Jesus' name. Thousand reasons for
study of God's Word with Pastor Kerry Wacker. We'd love to have you join us in person for worship each Sunday morning at 9 a.m. or 1045 a.m. We also meet Wednesday nights at 630 p.m. Warren Community Fellowship is located at 56523 Columbia River Highway in Warren, Oregon, between Scappoose and St. Helens. For more information about Warren Community Fellowship or about WCF Ministries, call us at 503-397-4387. And don't forget to like us on Facebook.